You know what we did in the bathroom today? G.I. Uh, Joe was swimming in the water. <laughs> and then the big brown shark came. <laughs> and Good my stuff. five-year-old had no idea what was going on. <laughs> but I loved it. podcast i'm your host danny paul with me of course is the vice host leon coventry leon danny hey it's our it's our new night happy day to you sir we are actually recording on a thursday or as shall we say thursday for the ladies is that what is ladies night these days i'm so old and out of the game i don't even know well all the bars are closed i don't know if there's any night for anybody fair enough there's no ladies night. there's no there's no there's nothing there's no nights nobody can go out anymore although there are some restrictions being lifted i got my first jab today and so my arm my arm hurts but what was was your vaccine of choice i got the pfizer Ah. Uh, so i got to go back on tax day at 12 40 a.m tax day got pushed for you international listeners and that's from right. my second jab of the Pfizer. In Arizona, they they lowered the restrictions to 16. And then uh, Governor Douchey, he is starting to roll back some of the mask mandates and closures and such. And so he's there's no special permit for gatherings of over 50. He's like, listen, we nailed 590,000 vaccines on our way to 2 million. And I got my two. Most everybody else got their two. That's at serious risk. And now that we've got everybody below 50 checking in, we're going to start slowly opening up as the science will allow. So Arizona's on nice. a pretty good track. Uh, not Must so be compared nice. to other states. Yeah, it's it's could be nice. We're still going to wear our masks, so we're waiting for the uh, why won't you let me into the Kroger? It's like, well, they're a national chain, dude. But We're still 65 and over here, and even them, they can't get in line. It's yeah. It's a disaster. To figure out some medical malady, right? Yeah. Well, I need some pre pre-existing condition so I can finally get my shot and move on. That's the way it is. What is your brown for tonight, sir? Brown tonight is a little bit off the beaten path. I finally have, uh, at least on this show, uh, ventured outside of Kentucky and Tennessee and went to the other Mecca of alcohol producing states, Colorado. Ooh. Tonight I am drinking old elk out of Fort Collins, Colorado. It's a good one. It's uh, it's, it's got, you know, their master distillers, 35 years in the business knows what he's doing. Uh, you know, teamed up with a venture capitalist, uh, really, really trying to uh, do some really cool stuff uh, out there. And, and uh, I'm willing to try uh, different whiskeys and different bourbons from different areas. A lot of cool stuff. If you go and read about that um, distillery specifically, their master distiller is awesome. But their their head distiller and their 
uh, I believe they're head of um, the their entire distillery are both female. So awesome, awesome for them. It's not you don't see that very much. It seems like such a man's industry or a male driven industry. So mm-hmm. I'd like to see that and, and support it and go for old elk. And I'll uh, I'll tell you. I, I, I tried it a little before the show, in all honesty, and uh, said, is this something I could drink for the whole show? And yeah, it's pretty damn good. And you're relaxed. So. Very good. Old Elk Bourbon Whiskey is where legacy meets innovation, where a master distiller with nearly four decades of bourbon experience under his belt collaborates with a master entrepreneur known for ingenious ventures to create a bourbon like no other. Click here to learn more. <laughs> Yeah, so, so we've got some pictures of ladies, got some got some ladies hand models. That's good. Diversity's good. It's not just an yeah. old wooden ship. Oh, it's a lady. I Ladies, am going man. to be going from our surprise upset in the last round of the brown bracket. We're going to be going with old granddad. Oh, nice. The granddaddy nice. of bourbon established 1882. Since 1882, the unique marriage of body and flavor in Old Granddad Whiskey has been the standard by which all others are judged. Discover the high-content, legendary, time-honored excellence of the distiller's craft found in every bottle. Claremont, I love, I love that uh, we're pushing each other out of our comfort zones and then trying new stuff. There's no way I would probably bought this bottle. I was such a loyalist to to uh, Kentucky and and occasionally Tennessee, but I had to try something new here for the show. So it's, it's really good. I would have never tried it. It's pretty good. Well, I'm enjoying the bracket. The bracket is also expanding uh, our magic 12 and, uh, and ourselves. So I have a, I have a nice variety in my cabinet now, instead of three bottles of green label and whatever scotch I pick up at Costco. So it's nice. Good. Spread your wings, right? The magic 12 comment on our, our, how the bracket's going so far. Any votes? No. Anybody weighing in? Well, I mean, 3B sounds off, but she's a friend of the show. So it's, it's tough to get uh, anonymous feedback. We get lots of likes. We're, uh, we're up to 29 followers on our Instagram page. So you could say perhaps more than the magic 12. We're just going off of stats that I can find from all of our various podcasts sources and unfortunately they don't give subscriber numbers we only know who downloaded an episode and the reason we say the magic 12 is because we have 12 unique downloads of mm. bottle of brown podcast episodes so we could go with magic 29 if you like uh, 12 12 sounds better <laughs> magic 12 it is magic 12 right, let's go from the magic 12 into the brown news Brown news. Brown news. <laughs> Coming from cicadas.yukon.edu. That's right. The University of Connecticut in Danny Paul's family. We have a Yukon Huskies graduate within my family. Therefore, ergo, I am a Yukon Huskies basketball fan of the men and the ladies. 27 times sweet 16 entry. Lady Huskies, way to go. Go UConn. Anyway, neither here nor there. This comes to us uh, talking about the mysterious 17-year phenomenon known as the cicada. You are familiar with these creatures, are you not? 
Damn. Uh, and I, living in Ohio, that was one of the first things introduced to me. I think the year I moved there, the year after, I can't remember, was a cicada year. That's how they designate them. <laughs> and, uh, and I do remember watching the Memorial Tournament based out in Dublin, Ohio, which is in the Columbus area there. And and uh, the, the golfers had to brush the cicadas off the green out of their putt line because there were so many of them. Uh, they are you know, probably two, two and a half inch scary looking bugs, but they don't bite or anything. They just make a heck of a lot of noise. They're mm. super loud. They make like a loud sound all, all night long and, uh, uh, and they're everywhere and they, they're not really afraid of you. They come right at, you know, they'll come right at you. I batted one away with, a, you know, a golf club in my hands and I get out of here cicada, but you know, every every year for the last five or six years, I kept hearing, oh, this this is the cicada year. This is the year that, you know, all the ugly parts of the Bible are going to come true and <laughs> the cicadas are going to take over. And uh, it never seemed to happen. I don't know. I mean, maybe they're sleeping in or I, they probably should have come out last year knowing it was 2020. I think they, they just missed it. I mean, that was the year to come out. Well, apparently this is the year. So what's known as brood X or brood 10, which is the great Eastern brood is supposed to affect up to 17. So 12, between 12 and 17 States all along the Midwest and the Eastern seaboard. And most of the affected from brood 10, because there are also broods six and 14 in Ohio, uh, brood 10 is going to be taking over a significant portion of our beloved adopted state of Kentucky. And we hope that doesn't have any effect on the sweet nectar for which we base the show. It's probably just fine. I mean, they come in, they make a lot of noise and then they die and then make the, all the soil really rich. So they're, they're an important part of the whole cycle. So, okay. No good. Big deal. All right. So rumors of our demise have been greatly exaggerated. That's that right. presents a particular challenge for understanding periodical cicada biology because it contains both 13 and 17 year life cycles, all seven currently recognized species and five separate broods, some of which include disjunct populations. So don't be in Illinois right now. Uh, that was interesting. Or ever, for that matter. Funny that you mentioned the, the biblical plagues, because we're going to finish up our headline segment with another one of the biblical plagues. Uh, let's move on oh, to other brown true. news. This one comes to us from CNN.com forward slash 2021 forward slash 03 forward slash 23 forward slash business forward slash alcohol sales decline due to the coronavirus. So on one of your earlier episodes of the podcast, we brought on Pun, and Pun talked to us about, we, we were thinking about, would the bar industry take a dive? Because if people get used to drinking at home, they won't want to go out. And we all agreed mm -hmm. that that was silly. So what we're seeing in place now is the article suggests that the bender appears to be over for booming booze sales sparked by the pandemic. For the first time in a year since COVID-19 began spreading across the United States, forcing Americans to stay home, retail alcohol sales have fallen. That's according to newly released data from Nielsen, which reported the total sales declined 1.9% for the week ending March 13. This time a year ago, 
consumers stockpiled alcohol as shelter-in-place orders were implemented across several U.S. states and bars and restaurants were closed or reduced service. As a result, retail alcohol sales shot up as much as 55% in March 2020 with spirits, wine, and beer among the top sellers. Now that trend appears to be waning, according to so-and-so vice president of beverage alcohol at Nielsen IQ. What do you think? I don't think it's a big shock, right? I think everyone assumed that, you know, once things started opening up, you're going to go do something else. What have you been doing for the last year? You've been looking at your, your wife, your kids, your roommate, whatever you've been quarantined to look at. And, you know, Hey, well, how are we going to make this situation better? We're going to get drunk. Yeah, I, I get it. <laughs> and we can't go out. We can't socialize. We can do virtual X, Y, and Z. I mean, I've never even heard of virtual happy hours. Now they're a thing and probably a thing here to stay. And uh, so, you know, people needed to, you know, ammo up and get, get, get full bars. I think it inevitably had to plateau or come down. I think it's important to note that this article was written prior to everyone just getting a $1,400 check in the U.S. So we'll Ooh. see what happens after the stimulus hits everybody's bank account. Good point. It'll be a minor spike back up again. Good point. Good point. The article goes on to say that wine sales fell 8% for the week ending March 13th, with spirits, flat, and beer sales slightly higher thanks to the continued popularity of spiked seltzers. If Nielsen excluded seltzer sales from its beer measurement, that category would have fallen more than 2% for the week. Perhaps more notably, total alcohol sales for the week would have fallen 3% if not for hard seltzers. I wonder if diehard beer fans would be slapped in the face to be hit with the realization that Nielsen is lumping together the claw and truly with beer. I am not a diehard beer fan. I, uh, I, I like the... I'm a Coors Light guy, you know, judge me for you. It's funny. I really like bold flavors with whiskey mm -hmm. and I want my beer to taste like nothing. Mm -hmm. But uh, with that being said, I, I, I also immediately, when you said that thought, what the heck they're lumping that in with beer. It's a totally different category. So I, I'm, I'm probably in that camp then I, I am upset that they are lumping those together. They are not the same thing. I gotta say though, the Bud Light Black Cherry Seltzer. Oh, Black Tar Heroin. I'm Serious guilty pleasure. Especially if, I, if you go to NASCAR and you get the big gigantic 24 ounce cans. Mm, magic. Absolute magic. We went down to I, Phoenix you know, Raceway to see the Xfinity 200, I believe, a couple of weeks ago. And we were in the infield and we went over and I said, Yeah, I'll get a drink. What do you got? And it was, Well, we only have grain silos. Or uh, intercontinental ballistic missiles. What would you like? I'll take one of those right there. And it was the Bud Light <laughs> Black Cherry Seltzer. And it was just this gigantic mammoth beast. So I ordered two. You know, I like them, but I don't like what it does to me. I feel, I swear, like more than beer, it blows me up. Like I can't stop gas coming out from every freaking orifice on my body, even if I drink one of those little cans. So I got to figure, I, maybe I have to get the one that comes with gas X and then maybe I'll be good. Too many bubbles. 
Too many bubbles. Well, it's not showing any signs of slowing. The article goes on. In recent weeks, several new seltzers have hit the market, including iced tea flavors of White Claw and a higher alcohol by volume offering from Truly. New options from Topo Chico and Spindrift also will soon be on sale. Uh, but the article, of course, concludes with the reality. Despite the declines, consumers are still buying. Nielsen said that retail sales of spirits, wine, and beer are still roughly 20 to 30% higher this month compared to March 2019. The okay. research firm warns that those trends will flatten in the coming weeks as more states reopen. They have to. Or stimulus check. Or stimulus check. That's right. Keep giving people money and they will spend it on booze. That's going to happen. Full reels. All right. Well, that yeah. wraps up our brown news. Brown news. Brown news. We'll be right back. <laughs> Welcome back to Bottle of Brown. If you're just joining us, it's time for headlines. <laughs> they threw me in public. <laughs> This one comes from Variety.com. Mrs. Doubtfire, director, confirms existence of an R-rated cut. So uh, you are a geek, my friend, but you are not the level of geek that I am when it comes to DC Comics. I got my Green Lantern ring. I got my Batman mask somewhere back there. I have my entire DC Comics encyclopedia on stash on the bookshelf. And so I'm very excited for the Zack Snyder's Justice League, all four hours of it. I had to read all about it. I had no idea. I, I saw it come up. I even saw a posting from you talking about how excited and how long you've waited for this. And I oh. said, what? I, I could have sworn this has come out. I've seen the Justice League. And uh, I, I had to do some research on why what it was all the buzz. What's everybody talking about? So... So for those it's of you who are uninitiated, if you're if you're strict whiskey geeks, it's cool. All love. The, the DC universe is a lot darker and grittier. It deals with very deep uh, literature-like themes of uh, relationships and what does it mean to be a god here on Earth? Like nobody bats an eye that Thor is all of a sudden here from the ninth dimension uh, and he wields a hammer that's heavier than anything. That's just kind of the way Marvel is. Marvel is a very tight, uh, quirky fantasy where everything is bright colors. And it's it's a very unique, like I, I can't get enough of Marvel movies. I'm not going to trash them. I, I'm a fan of both. But if you're looking for a contrast, the DC movies are very dark and gritty and and they, they speak to very, very Greek tragedy-like themes. And so they're definitely two different types of movies. Unfortunately, back in 2017, uh, the dopes over at Warner Brothers were like, we need to make more Marvel movies. And it's like, well, no, Marvel has that locked up. Don't do not do that. Go do something different. But, you know, idiots being idiots decided to make changes. And so they handed off a half-finished movie to the Marvel guy. And he tried to turn a dark, gritty Greek tragedy into a bubblegum, neon-colored PG-13 fest. And, of course, it was... God awful. I watched it once and said, never again. Yeah. I was actually disappointed in Aquaman for that very same reason, because I thought that they spent too much time joking about the fact that Jason Momoa was, 
you know, this godlike new Fabio, you know, the new 2020 Fabio. And, uh, you know, he'd throw his hair back and they would make a thing out of it. And I Mm. thought, this doesn't feel like DC. And then when, you know, I, I saw the justice league too. I didn't think, uh, it was nearly on par with that style of, like you said, it's a darker, grittier feels real. Like when you watch DC, you're, you're like, this could actually happen, even though it probably won't. Uh, and, but they're doing a good job of what would this, what would, what would Superman be like today? What would Batman be like today? If there was a God on earth. So, uh, an overwhelming fan reaction started restore the Snyder cut. And that was what led to, um, the, the very, very high reps at AT&T who just bought Warner Brothers saying, this is about money. And we're in the middle of the streaming wars and we're a subscription-based company. You know, the other half of AT&T is DirecTV, it's handsets, it's 5G. Like they're used to the idea of give us money every month. So they kind of came down to the traditional studio executives and said, listen, we're about a little bit of money every month forever. And you guys want to come in and do big chunks of money and just we're going to run with this just as an experiment. So they went back and they gave Zack Snyder all of the leeway that he needed and about $30 million to remake the movie. And so fast forward to why we're talking about Mrs. Doubtfire is there seems to be an emergence of people going, give us the director's original vision, give us the full movie, give us, you know, you've got these new avenues where you don't need to fit it into a 90 minute time slot uh, to be able to run three or four cycles in a day at a movie theater. And so there might be opportunities to go looking for weird iterations of movies. They were talking about uh, Batman Forever supposedly has a three-hour cut of where mm. they left in all the sex jokes, like nipples on the bat suit and all that. Um, some of the DC movies, some of the other DC movies made at the time, like Suicide Squad, again, was just torn apart by idiots with spreadsheets, just not realizing what it was about. So they want to release the air cut. This one spoke to me because we both love Robin Williams. Absolutely. So on Friday, the article states, director Chris Columbus revealed that an R-rated version of the beloved 1993 comedy, Mrs. Doubtfire, exists. The confirmation first came from Entertainment Weekly following a viral tweet that noted Robin Williams, who played the eponymous Euphigenia Doubtfire, improvised so much that there were PG, PG-13, R, and NC-17 cuts of the film. The original film was rated PG-13. Columbus explained that the numerous cuts came as a result of Williams asking to, quote, let me play, unquote, after he did a few scripted takes. He would then go on for 15 or 22 takes with his own improvised lines. He would sometimes go into territory that wouldn't be appropriate for a PG-13 movie, but certainly appropriate and hilariously funny for an R-rated film. In addition to there not actually being an NC-17 version, it's unlikely a full R-rated edition of Mrs. Doubtfire will ever be available. Boo! Oh. But that doesn't mean audiences might not get more of Williams' comedic genius. Uh, I would be open to maybe doing a documentary about the making of the film and enabling people to see certain scenes re-edited in an R-rated context. And the reason that we started with the whole Justice League deal is, ding, 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 HBO released a comprehensive documentary about the actor in 2018, several years after oh, his death perfect. in August 2014. Unlike the cinematic portrait of Robin Williams come inside my mind, Columbus's possible documentary would scope in on the significance of a single role. Columbus said it could include interviews with him, editor Roger Gosnell, and producer Marsha Garces Williams. I think that would be the best approach. I'm very proud of this film. 
Anybody who's ever seen an interview with Robin knows that he went off yeah. on weird tandems. And even Jimmy Fallon's uh, take on him in Saturday Night Live was that he would just go way over there. Yeah, I, I, I don't know if I wondered if the late night, the Johnny Carson's, the Jay Leno's, the, 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 the late night folks wanted him because it made their job super easy. They just basically said, hey, Robin, nice to see you. And then off they went and they didn't have to talk again. Ten minutes because he just kept going and going and going. So I and, and but none of that came out in any of the rehearsal. It was just. You know, usually they have to poke and prod their guests to try to get them to tell funny stories or what have you. And not with him. It was always with him and Will Ferrell's team to be that way. You know, yeah. they just come out. They're going to do what they're going to do. They take and just, over the show. you know, hold on to your hats because, you know, it's going to be something funny. I I am so excited about the possibility of this because there are two separate um appearances from him that were supposed to be serious that ended up going off the rails and being hysterically funny. Um, I was a big fan of Charlie Rose, you know, despite him being an asshole, I was a big fan of that format, that gigantic circular table, you know, with the spotlight coming down and he would just kind of lean in and my guest on the program tonight. You know, and, and I, I liked that format. It's kind of, it's one of the inspirations for this podcast is what if we could just do that gigantic circular table in a black background with a spotlight on it. And they were supposed to talk about the really deep themes of psychiatry and loss and trauma. It was about goodwill hunting. And so Robin's on one side of the table and Matt Damon's on the other. And this was supposed to be an introspective as to why this violent kid who is damaged by trauma made this movie. And at one point, Robin just goes and Charlie can't reel him in. So Charlie just lets him go. And he goes off on a 15 minute tangent that is hysterically funny. And it's way out of place for Charlie Rose. You know what I find funny is that's the format that you picture in your head as the ideal format. When I am picturing James Lipton as the ideal format. (laughs) Ironic that you say that because the other one is actor studio. Him and Lipton got going and Lipton also couldn't reel him back in. And so he just started working the audience. And uh, there was a girl in the front whose laugh was so loud that I'm sure they had to pause the cameras and wait for her to finish. Because at some point, Robin just leans over and goes, what is your name? That laugh is so wonderful. And I guess the story behind this particular broadcast, you can find it, it's on Bravo. Um, there was somebody in the back that had to have an ambulance called in because they had a hernia from laughing. Oh, wow. Like, dude, what oh, more what do you need? Loss. What a loss. Ugh. Well, sadness. Yeah. Pour well, some good, out. Pour some good out story. Robin. Yeah, I hope I hope that comes out on HBO. Let's more, uh, let's more, more Robin's good for everyone. More Robin is good for everyone. Very good, sir. All right, let's pivot over to some sport ball. This one comes from ESPN.com. NFL announces TV deals, ESPN, ABC, NBC, CBS, Fox, who we already know about, and the Zon. Amazon. Yes, sir. What what don't they own these days? Yeah, well, now I'm, they're gonna they're in football now, huh? I got some ideas on that myself. The NFL announced a new set of national television deals Thursday, keeping games on ESPN, ABC, Fox, CBS, NBC, Amazon, and NFL Network through the 2033 season. 
The agreement keeps Sunday afternoon games on CBS and Fox, Sunday night on NBC, and Monday night on ESPN, with some games also airing on ABC. For the first time, Amazon will be the exclusive home for Thursday night games, which will also be on over-the-air channels in the competing team's home markets. NFL Network will also air select games. ABC picks up two Super Bowls during the deal, the first in 2026, with the other networks airing three each. Now, they don't clarify there. When they say networks, we're probably talking CBS, Fox, and NBC. But how weird slash bitching would it be if Amazon hosted a Super Bowl? You know, they do it right. As much as I hate them for taking over the world and you know, siphoning every dollar out of my pocket, uh, they're, they're, they do things right. There was an announcement when it came, uh, I want to say shortly after Biden took office that, you know, Bezos or whoever uh, from Amazon that teamed up and, and they were being integrated in the vaccine release. And I thought the whole time, if anybody can get these vaccines into people's arms, it's Amazon. Mm-hmm. They're logistical geniuses. Mm-hmm. And uh, they, they, they have figured that out. The, the bigger call outs on this to me is what the hell has happened to ESPN? I mean, they own sports sports which is such an important part of the culture in the u.s and last year i remember there's this massive layoff of all these big uh, or maybe it wasn't last year it felt like last year such a long year who knows what you're going to but i remember that yeah and, and they were just all these personalities that have been there forever and ever and ever you know getting rid of them uh, you know and mike and mike on the radio well they fell apart for many different reasons but you know that that whole thing uh fell apart and they were kept claiming that they're not making the money they're not making the money and i'm thinking how did you mess this up because i i just i i think that they had an opportunity to just crush the competition and own all of sports but they're they're whoever's doing the negotiating to get them into the platforms or, or the channels or the direct TVs or the dishes, they're doing it all wrong. They're, they're, they're making their money in the wrong spots and it's, it's hurting them more than helping them. I I just find that shocking that if Amazon who doesn't have a foothold in this already is clobbering ESPN when it comes to that type of, entry of course they have more money behind them but well i mean do they i mean the house of mouse owns espn so it's not a matter of dollars there there is money to be spent i think it has a lot to do with distribution you can get amazon anywhere you got to go through a cable package to get espn because espn plus uh as far as my experience is concerned sucks it's not espn the channel simply streaming uh, the SPN app on at least the Fire Stick and Apple TV is awful. Oh, so yeah, I don't off, even have it. Yeah, you'd be better off doing it on ESPN as a cable package. But even then, it's just not they're they're not set up for for what is coming. And it's exactly what you were saying. ESPN was the undisputed king. Something like thirty three cents on the dollar of everybody's cable subscription went to ESPN. 
It was it was the undisputed lead ruler of all. And they they're like Kodak with the digital camera. It's like, guys, you didn't see the internet coming. You don't think Sports Center is set up for a web-based interface? Right. It was really disappointing. So ESPN has one more year on its current deal and it added a bridge agreement for 2022 for the upcoming 2021 season. ESPN will add two Saturday games with playoff implications in the final week of the season for 2022. Those games will continue and there will be the Sunday morning international game on ESPN plus. So uh, that's interesting that they're starting to spread things out. One thing as a result of all the COVID based delays is there was a football game every day of the week last season. Do you realize mm. that? I did not. So there were there were COVID-based delays that would kick uh, some teams off Sunday and Monday. And so they would have games on Tuesday and Wednesday. And then some of the Thursday games got delayed to Friday. And then, of course, when college football got shut down because of all the COVID outbreaks, they also had games on Saturday. So at some point last season during the pandemic, there was a football game in the NFL played on every day of the week. You know, so they broke the mold. You know what, Magic 12, you can you can correct me. Uh, I'm going straight off the cuff here on something I heard on a radio station that probably isn't even a valid point. But they were talking about how viewers, viewership for nearly all sports, definitely football, was down this last year significantly. And I thought, how is that possible, right? And how is it possible that we have less viewership when everyone is stuck at home with nothing else to do but watch, watch, watch TV? I remember when that first golf event came out, and yeah. I was just – I needed it. It was a terrible event, but I was like, i got to have it because I'm so sick of old rerun television because nothing – Nothing's new. And I, th I, I I don't know how they messed that up, you know, if that's really the case. So maybe that's a different headline for a different day. But uh, if, if, if we really were watching less sports, it's amazing to me. Yeah, I mean, the story is on ESPN.com itself. So there's a heavy ESPN bias in this. There's about six paragraphs that all start with what ESPN is doing. And they're, the general tone of the article is we haven't lost it, but they've lost it. Once Amazon gets a lock on one day, they'll just you're, back you're the truck up. Yeah, they'll, they'll back done. the truck up and they'll just start buying from the NFL. And, and what I wanted to say is this is pretty typical of most of the things that these large companies do. Apple doesn't need to get into television. Amazon doesn't need to do football. It's just another way to sell phones and paper towels. So right. your, your traditional business, and again, that goes to the dopes over at Warner Brothers, um, HBO Max for life. These guys are coming in saying, no, no, we're going to make movies to make money. It's like, no, dude, Amazon makes movies to sell Toilet paper. Yeah. Like they're, they're completely uh, owning everything. I, I honestly think, though, and, you know, when you get into that level of leadership that they have, obviously they have great employees all the way up the chain. Uh, and, and they do have some challenges right now with, you know, bridging the gap between the executives and, and what's going on uh, for the entry level positions at Amazon. But that being aside, the people that are making big strategic decisions and taking on these types of ventures, you get what you pay for. And, and my understanding is that companies like Amazon and these progressive companies are just crushing it. They go out and they get talent. They get the talent that needs to be there. They pay them to do it. And then they go knock it out of the park. And that is very counter to what I'm seeing in a lot of other industries out there right now, where they feel like, you know, anybody's dispensable, you know, any, anybody 
people are like, uh, you know, a pencil in a drawer. And if it mm-hmm. breaks, you just get another pencil. It's not true. And, and, and you can see that with companies like this that are just crushing people because they realize how important the talent is. Do you think that Amazon put their person who's in charge of distribution in Asia in charge of this network deal? No, they went out and they found somebody who knows what the hell they're doing and they are going to knock this out of the park and they're going to do it very, very well. And they're going to, they're going to crush ESPN and anybody else and actually listen to the experts too, by the way, that's important. You know, I, I, I know I'm doing on total tangent here, but I just get so angry when you go out, you spend so much time and effort getting talent to do the thing that you want them to do. And then when they get in there, you tell them what to do. What, 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 why did you get me that? I, I, Mm -hmm. why did you come out and get me? Mm -hmm. So, and I think that, you know, Amazon does that well, despite their huge gap between the top and the bottom. Well, Disney famously pivoted in Q4 of last year to making movies and television shows for Disney plus. They they can't open the parks. They can't put the boats out in the water. So they understand that streaming is the way to go. It's very likely that they're probably kind of pivoting from Disney plus now that they've got the momentum going, they're probably going to pivot over to ESPN plus because they don't really know what to do with Hulu right now. I don't think like Hulu should be all of the R rated Disney content. So Touchstone, Miramax, uh, all the stuff they bought from Fox, everything that's R-rated that's that's currently Disney-owned should probably skip over to Hulu, and that'll just be the R-rated mouse house. Uh, mm. I, I think it makes a lot of sense for them to pivot and kind of start pe- paying attention to ESPN Plus as a way to kind of migrate all of this content over. But it, you're absolutely right. A lot of the old tried-and-true guys are gone. Dan Patrick's gone. Berman's gone. Uh, ESPN is certainly a, a shadow of its former self. So they got some opportunities to maintain greatness, but losing a dedicated day to Amazon. I don't know. It's only the beginning. That is only the beginning. It's just the first step. The end of the article goes on to say Goodell also said the league plans to work with its partners to infuse legalized sports betting into broadcasts. Wow, what a 180 the NFL has taken. That might be a separate broadcast altogether, but we probably definitely want to talk about that. What what does legalized sports gambling in a National Football League sponsored format? Super exciting. Wow. Yeah, that's let's 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 put a pin in that one because that's at least a good idea. That's at least a 30-minute conversation. I like it. I like it. All right. Final headline today goes back to what we were talking about biblical plagues before we've talked about cicadas, which are not locusts, but the idea that, well, we had a pandemic, we had floods, we had tornadoes, we had hurricanes, we had uh, horrible fires in Australia, uh, you name it, everything, but the firstborn being taken away. Although maybe the pandemic's working on that. Now you've got oh, at least we didn't get hit by sky. Oh, what? Got this it. one comes from nature.com. Okay. Record number of asteroids seen whizzing past Earth in 2020. (laughs) Despite the pandemic disruption, astronomers detected thousands of previously unknown near-Earth asteroids last year. Yes, my friend, the final of the plagues, fire from the sky. 
A 340-meter-wide space rock named Apophis whizzed safely past Earth on March 6th. Next time it returns in 2029, won't be so uneventful, Apophis will come within 40,000 kilometers of the planet, skimming just above the region where some high-flying satellites orbit. It'll be the first time that astronomers will be able to watch such a big asteroid pass so close to us. Last week's flyby gave scientists a chance to test the worldwide planetary defense system in which astronomers quickly assess the chances of an asteroid hitting Earth as they follow its path across the sky. Yes, Armageddon and Deep Impact are real. I, look, I, I would be very surprised if we didn't have some better defenses in place but I really shouldn't be because this pandemic caught everybody off guard like it could never happen. So uh, I hope that people started start thinking a little bit more seriously that we are we are a heartbeat away from getting a rock smashed into our planet, and we got nothing to do. But yeah, I mean, quiver. Say, say what you want about geopolitics and and oil and the environment we are still a rock hurtling through space uh mm -hmm. this this graph here which uh for the benefit of the listeners i'll try and describe it it says space rocks 2020 was a record year for near earth asteroid discoveries and it's got the x-axis between 1995 and 2020 so we're looking at roughly and what would you say a 25 year scale here so mm -hmm. it's got uh Near-Earth asteroids detected, you've got less than 500 coming up to about 2004. From 2004 to 2012, it balloons to 1,000. And then from 2014 all the way to 2020, the curve goes straight up. And we're looking at almost 3,000 rocks are near-Earth asteroids. There was that big, long one called uh, Muamua mm -hmm. uh, a year or two ago. So... 2020 you know, was a shitty year all around. It makes me wonder, though, that, that to me, that trend seems like maybe we're just getting better at discovering them, <laughs> you know, like maybe the technology or whatever is identifying these. And, you know, maybe we could only see the super big ones before, but now we can see the ones that are as big as a baseball. You know, I, I don't know. Well, I mean, it's it. Ignorance is bliss in that respect, right? Yeah. So it's it's tough when you hear news of you know everything's so much more violent, so much more is going on. It's like, well, now you know about it. This one here, right. uh, close calls. Some of the asteroids discovered last year came close to Earth. At least 107 of them passed the planet at a distance less than that of the moon. Last year's close shaves included the tiny asteroid 2020 QG, which skimmed just 2,900 kilometers above the Indian Ocean. That made it the closest known approach, a record broken just three months later by another small object. That one passed less than 400 kilometers from the planet and wasn't spotted until 15 hours after it whizzed by. Had it hit, it would have probably have broken apart in Earth's atmosphere. So the question is, great, rocks are coming at us all the time. Isn't that the essence of a comet or a meteor shower or a shooting star? But right. How big are these things and what kind of effect are we looking at? Well, either way, it scares me enough to say, let's get, let's get some lasers online out there if we don't already have them and let's, let's figure this one out. Missiles. Call Bruce Willis. <laughs> 
Oh, that's yeah. Let's from the crank file. This crank is the file. This is the crank file. This is the part where I find something really, really weird, and you just shake your head. So cue you shaking your head, my friend. Oh goodness! Remember our last entry from the crank file. I uh, believe it had something to do with cheese. Donkey cheese. Donkeys. Yes. Yes, my friend. Donkey cheese is the most expensive cheese on the planet. You know what the most dangerous cheese on the planet is? Toe cheese? Fomunda cheese? Well, Fomunda cheese is absolutely dangerous, especially if your friends wipe it on your face when you're not looking. I was <laughs> thinking of the Italian Kasumatsu the world's most dangerous cheese. This one comes from CNN.com travel section. This, my friend, is maggot cheese. Ah, jeez. What? Similar to the poop coffee from Africa, which we'll probably talk about in another episode, where an animal must digest it and secrete it in order for it to be then re-ingested by humans. This is like the corn of high cuisine. The Italian island of Sardinia sits in the middle of the Tyrrhenian Sea, gazing at Italy from a distance. Surrounded by an 1,800-kilometer coastline of white sandy beaches and emerald waters, the, the island's inland landscape rapidly rises to form hills and impervious mountains. And it is within these edgy curves that shepherds produce kasumatsu, a maggot-infested cheese that in 2009, the Guinness World Record proclaimed the world's most dangerous Cheese. What makes it dangerous? I, I don't have you. Uh, funny you should say that. Let's go through the process of how Kasumarzu is made. Ready your stomach, my man. Uh, another swig of this. Cheese skipper flies, codenamed Pyophila cassi, lay their eggs in the cracks that form in the cheese, usually Fiore Sardo, the Islands salty pecorino. So think of a pecorino cheese, which is usually kind of uh, rigid. Uh, maggots from the flies hatch, make their way through the paste, digesting proteins in the process and transforming the product into a soft, creamy cheese. Then the cheesemonger cracks open the top, which is almost untouched by the maggots, to scoop out a spoonful of the creamy delicacy. Not a moment for the faint hearted. At this point, the grubs inside begin to writhe frantically. Some locals like to spin the cheese through a centrifuge to merge the maggots with the cheese. Mm. Others mm. like it all natural. They open their mouths and eat everything. Mm. Now, we like hot dogs, so we're probably used to rat poop and parts and fingers and all that. But this is the world's most dangerous cheese because if the maggots are not dead when they hit your intestines, they might try and eat their way out. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. No. Good times. No. No. Some no. say it's an aphrodisiac. Others say it could be dangerous for human health as maggots could survive the bite and create myasis, micro perforations in the intestine, but so far no such case has been linked to Katsumarzu. The cheese is banned from commercial sale, but Sardinians those plucky Italians have been eating it, jumping grubs included for centuries. Why is everything that's totally disgusting and horrible an aphrodisiac? I think that's a trick. That's, that's a trick question. that people say. They're like, hey, if you eat 
if you eat this snot that comes from a uh, shell that grows in the ocean or this bay, uh, you're you're going to get horny. That's that's uh, what's going to happen. Rocky Mountain and, oysters, oh, okay, right? Okay, well, I'll eat that snot then. Yeah, yeah. Well, no, yeah. any oysters. That's supposed to be an aphrodisiac. And no. uh, apparently, so is maggot poop. The maggot infestation is the spell and delight of the cheese, says Paolo Salinas, a 29-year-old Sardinian gastronome. He says some Sardinians cringe at the thought of katsumarzu, but others raised on a lifetime of salty pecorino unabashedly love its strong flavors. When tourists visit Sardinia, they usually wind up in a restaurant that serves it. Uh, Porcedu Sardo, a slowly roasted suckling piglet, visit bakers who sell Pane Carasau, a traditional paper-thin flatbread, and meat shepherds who produce Fiore Sardo, the island's pecorino cheese. Yet, oh. if you are adventurous enough, it's possible to find the Katsumatsu. It should be seen as a weird attraction, but a product that keeps alive an ancient tradition and hints at what the future of food might look like. Hard pass. Come on. All right, well, that wraps up the crank file. That was a good today. crank file. All yeah. right. Uh, we'll be right back. Welcome back to Bottle of Brown. Let's finish up with our parenting segment. Leon, you had something you wanted to go with? Well, yeah. I mean, I think uh, we've been working pretty hard uh, right now with our four-year-old trying to get her to use empathy. Right. That's a hard, that's a hard thing to get kids to understand. And, uh, she has zero empathy and we'll, we'll continue to work on that. And we've talked in the past of, Hey, help me understand, you know, when you're tired, do you want me to wake you up? Right. <laughs> well, uh, I was asleep, needed it desperately. And, uh, my wife decided to get up early, uh, go downstairs and throw on a, uh, hand mask and a face mask and just kind of, you know, sp spoil herself while the kid's asleep and the husband's asleep and have some time to herself. Well, apparently my, my charming daughter decided that's the time she also wants to wake up, which she never does at that time. He goes downstairs, witnesses this and comes back upstairs uh, and decides to, I could hear her come through the door and I'm like, please, we've had this conversation let daddy sleep, please let daddy sleep. And she comes up and just shakes me and goes, daddy, you have to see this. Mom is hideous. <laughs> and I was like, what? First of all, that's a big word for a four-year-old. And second, <laughs> what is happening? Because I had no idea what was going on. Oh, she's got She's hideous. She's got this hideous thing on her face. I'm like, oh, she must have a face mask on. But oh yeah, she's. I, I don't. I, I would love any tips from uh, anyone that's you know a little farther along to help instill empathy in, in kids because it's it's a real. It, I don't know if you're born with it or if it's taught, but we're certain we're certainly trying to teach it because right now she doesn't seem to have any. I think it's taught. I think there's adults that don't have it. Um, yeah. For those of you looking up Google right now, don't worry about it. I got you. The definition of empathy, according to Merriam-Webster, is the action of understanding, being aware of, being sensitive to, and vicariously experiencing the feelings, thoughts, and experience of another 
of either the past or present without having those feelings, thoughts, and experience fully communicated in an objectively explicit manner. Think of the old adage, uh, walk a mile in someone else's shoes. Uh, think about what they must be going through. Uh, put somebody else's thoughts and feelings before your own. And yeah, I mean, for, for four-year-olds, I mean, five, my five-year-old's the same way. It's like, buddy, come on. I asked you not to do that. I'm tired. No, they don't, at that age, I mean, at that age, they're just understanding that there's an entire world out there. Uh, my eight-year-old does better with it. He's a little bit more aware of other people's feelings, but you know, there are still certain times where he's like, he wants what he wants and hell or high water. So I, from my experience, it's a function of time, but yeah. You I was just going to say, is it just something, it. is it something that's just born out of experience? So when, you know, when you've had your heart broken, it's easier for you to empathize with people that are having their heart broken. Is that, hmm. Is that where it comes from? And, and they're just so they're just so young that they don't have those experiences logged yet. So, uh, yeah, I, I don't know what you're saying. Uh, I don't understand why this is a big deal. Uh, I sleep every day, so why would you care that I'm waking up? You know, when when they, she doesn't realize, obviously, that we protect her incessantly when she's sleeping. If there's people outside making too much noise, quiet. Sleep. The dogs try to get in. No barking, you know. <laughs> she doesn't understand all the work we do to make sure she has a peaceful night's sleep. And uh so obviously she doesn't she can't comprehend what it's like to not and uh to purposely not. So. There are probably people that grow up with the ability to have natural empathy, but I think it's taught. I think you have to actually convince somebody, especially when they're little like that and their minds are moldable. You have to teach them. Listen, your experience is not the whole of humanity. It's not like your, your perspective on the world is not all encompassing. There are people that experience things that you don't. You need to be aware of it. You don't necessarily have to understand it, but you want to try and at least relate it and acknowledge it. And yeah, I mean, a four-year-old, if you're tired, too bad. Let's just sleep when they sleep. Like even, even the eight-year-old, if he's got to pee, I go pee. Just pee when they pee, <laughs> sleep when they sleep. It's just... They they have no concept of the, of the greater-ness of what's going on. It, you, know, you learn a lot from your kids because they don't have a lot of the guardrails that you've put up throughout your life, and you kind of wish you could be that way. It was one of those things that I'm just like, uh, you know. That that's one I wish I could I could flip faster, but she's got she's got to learn, right? She's just got to get through it. And, and uh, but there, how many, how many times do you, when you're around your kids go, God, that is so wise. <laughs> it's so, so blatantly obvious in my face and you didn't catch it because of all of your perspectives and experiences warped what actually is happening. I so. love that you said that there are things that just literally make me die laughing because their little tiny brain has a very unique perspective on things. And so usually it's when they're trying to describe something, like it's certainly not the way that I would describe it. So when you're talking about empathy and how you develop it, it's you really have to try and understand somebody's perspective. Oh my gosh. But yeah, I mean, that's what, what do they, what do they see at that age? And you know, it's tunnel vision. Well, how many times have we said, we watched a movie that we watched when we were younger again now and saw 20 other things you never saw before. Oh, yeah. Completely yeah. different movies, adult jokes, mm -hmm. 
innuendo references Easter eggs totally. Yeah. Yeah. Perspective is a dangerous and wondrous thing. So I, I thank you. I've learned a lot about empathy tonight. This is a, uh, we'll close with this. This is from psychology today. Developing empathy is crucial for establishing relationships and behaving compassionately. Some surveys indicate that empathy is on the decline in the United States and elsewhere findings that motivate parents, schools, and communities to support programs that help people of all ages enhance and maintain their ability to walk in each other's shoes. And I 100% agree in that. When you lack empathy, you build tribes, you point to them or they, you talk about the other, and it gives rise to bullies. So my friend, continue to teach young little miss empathy. I will try. I will continue to try. Very good, sir. That's our episode for the night. All right. Next episode, we're going to continue our brown bracket. Uh, let me pull that one up so that we can give a little feeder into what we're looking at here. And don't forget to make comments out there, Big 12. We want to know what you yeah. think because we've got some big ones coming up here. We've got uh, Jefferson's Ocean versus Angel's Envy in the progressive distilling bracket. We've got Old Forester 1897 versus my new best friend, Old Granddad. We've got Buffalo Trace versus Woodford, which you've promised oh, to do tough. a blind taste test. Yep. And then under our single battle, our single barrel category, we've got Knob Creek going up against Four Roses. Should we do all of them blind? Hmm. That's interesting. We're going to have to figure out how we're going to break it down because we've been doing, we've been doing two a piece, right? At some point we're going to have to do the two together, but uh, I'm not against doing them blind. Just kind of mm. bring in a, a Vanna white, you know? Yeah. Well, triple B says she's ready to join anytime. So we got to bring her on one of these. She is welcome to join uh, busty bourbon batch on Instagram. For those of you interested in following uh, lady's got an eye for the camera, my man. Yeah. She's, she loves going out and finding landscapes and at the right times of the day and, and getting her favorite bourbons. And she's definitely got a skill. So it's a, it's a fun feed to watch. If you like, if you like bourbon for sure, um, she's, she's good show, at it. Check her out. You've probably seen her because she puts 10 million hashtags on each of her posts, but I got to say <laughs> the quality of the content is there. She knows how to frame a shot. She knows how to get perspective. She's got some brilliant color pop in those photos. And of course the Brown is front and center. Yep. Absolutely. All right. Well, I'm excited for next week's uh, bracket. And, uh, and it, please weigh in, weigh in on what you think it'll, it'll, it will influence, especially with 12. I mean, yeah. well, we each got, get a uh, vote. We got round two coming up, go to bottle of forward slash Brown bracket. And, uh, you can hit us up on our Instagram page at Bob media, LLC. You can also go to bottle and listen to all of our episodes. Email us at bottle at gmail.com. You can email Danny. You can email Leon. You can refute anything we said in the show, or you can leave topics for content. Uh, please give us your feedback on the Brown bracket. We want to do it right. And that's all for this episode, my man. See you next time, sir. Danny, have a wonderful weekend. You too, buddy. Peace. Peace.
place is dead anyway, man.